Hello, my friends. Hello, my life warriors, wherever you are in the world. I do hope you're having a good day. Uh, welcome to the Day In, Day Out podcast. Uh, this is episode 72, uh, where I had the immense pleasure of having uh, Minta Dial on the podcast today. Uh, the best way I can explain this gentleman, he is, a, like, let's just say he has a career of two halves. He was basically working for L'Oreal for 16 years. And then basically, uh, after a real big life-changing moment, uh, he basically switched and changed up his career uh, to become, well, how can I say, the second half of his, of his career, he became an author, podcaster, keynote speaker, uh, entrepreneur consultant uh, to name but a few i got to say he is a very interesting chap to speak to uh, a good laugh and yeah i really felt like i learned a lot so please sit back enjoy the podcast and yeah have a great day thank you very much and be excellent peace ah Hello, my friends. Hello, my life warriors. Wherever you are in the world, I, uh, this is the Day In, Day Out podcast. Uh, this is episode oh, number 72. Ooh, I am very privileged and happy to have on the show today, ooh, uh, Minta Dial. Uh, how can I say? It? Now, this is a guy who... Busy is not the word. He has been working. He worked at L'Oreal for over 16 years. He became a keynote speaker. After that, consultant, author. Like you could say his life, if it was a game of football, has definitely been one of two halves. And I would say, yeah, the second half has definitely been uh, the more interesting side of things. Uh, if, if I could say that. But rather than me sort of waxing lyrical and like, um, yeah. Minta, how are you, sir? How are you? Excellent. Thank you for having me on. I love that intro. Lots of energy that you have. My, my, step, my ex-stepmother used to describe me as a 75 milliliter bottle of wine with 125 milliliters of wine within. <laughs> well, that's a party right there, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> uncork me uncork me oh well like this is the thing uncork you let the talons like let the talons rest and away we go you're not box wine you're a quality breed right there <laughs> i'm getting older like wine hopefully better well absolutely absolutely i have to say thank you for coming on the podcast today it is a pleasure uh yeah I, i've got to say one of the things what brought me to your like your attention came to up is I looked at when we got in contact initially, I looked through, I was like, okay, you've done the work at L'Oreal for a 16 year period. Like that is that over that 16 years, that is a hell of a lot of change, which has gone on from basically huh, um, conventional to sort of the digital and now to like, basically, yeah on the sort of like the birthing of like the whole social media age. What was that like when you first initially started? Well, there are a couple of things to nuance that. The first is I started my, my at least in the L'Oreal world, I began my career in France. Mm. And in 1993, when I started in France, this was well before any explosion of the internet. 
to say the least. When I was transferred to America in 1998, I, I really did live the, the internet boom and bubble. And, and, and there, was, there was definitely a several year lag from France. So when I went from France to America, it was just a massive step change. And the step change was all the more interesting when I went back, when I was transferred back, I went to Canada for a few years. And then from Montreal, I landed back in Paris again. And I felt like I'd gone back a few years in terms of the transformation of society, transformation of the enterprise. Mm. So that, that was the first thing. And the second thing, which also happened in that period, which definitely transformed me. And I think a lot of people was going through September 11, 2001 in Manhattan. Oh, And there was for me a time before and there's a time afterwards. And I'm not looking at this from a terrorism standpoint or a political standpoint. I'm looking at it from the perspective of what's important in life. And I think it certainly for me sent me on my way to thinking, well, I, I don't just want to make numbers, get a paycheck. I want to do things that are more meaningful for me. Mm. So these are the two things that nuanced my journey over those 16 years. Right. Like, one of the things I would have thought, like going from like Paris to, like, to New York and basically Canada and coming back, like in, it's one company. So there's a sort of company culture, but how does that culture sort of transcend like oh, transcends uh, the sort of different countries you were in is it the same or is it different or is there like yeah little nuance great question so it, it, there's going to be the same there's going to be different and there are plenty of nuances within it let me give you a few examples of the nuances the further from the headquarters you are the better the chance for more discrepancy You're sort of out of sight out of mind so let's say you were in australia or you were in Argentina, that's quite far away, and there was more chance for other types of things to happen. The second nuance is who's running the country for L'Oreal. And in order to maintain their culture, they had a general intention of putting French people who came from headquarters in the positions of power in the different countries. This was obviously not a generalization for everything, but it would. They, that's what they like to do in order to keep that culture. Mm. And the third one was the size of the country in which you worked. Because if you're in a small country, you don't have the same kind of resources, you don't weigh as much, and you don't have quite as much liberty, if you will. When you are a United States and you bear 35% of the total company's revenues, which by far exceeds any other country, not only do you have a sense of entitlement because of your size, and by the way, you know, not made in America, you know, in Americans think we're all different and so on better. <laughs> Secondly, um, well, you have the resources to recreate things that are generally coming from the headquarters. So in the smaller countries, you have to take what comes from headquarters because you don't have the resources to do it. If you're in the United States, not invented here, your ad doesn't work for my country and the United States would have different dominion. That said, for the majority of my time in North America, the North American subsidiaries were run by Frenchmen. So this would, they would attempt to keep parts of the culture, but naturally, uh, you know, in a country like America, so many more 
local-born executives bringing in a more New York style flavor to the management style. And in, and in Quebec, while we were, we were located in, in Canada, there was also many Canadians and, and they bring a different flavor. So nuanced, there is no such thing as uh, a, you know, a one way for everybody within the cultures around the countries. But you could see why some countries would have more a stronger imprint of the typical L'Oreal culture mm. and others would sort of dissipate and maybe create their own. Yeah, I can, I, I can imagine. Like, so with that, like, with all the sort of differences with regards to, I can see L'Oreal sending everyone sort of from head office to sort of keep that main identity. Um, did that sort of change with the sort of advent of the internet? Because I can imagine it's, you've got this one sort of unified message, like you get people from head office coming in, but then all of a sudden you've got the internet, which is like, okay, it can be focused to be quite local, very local. Well, especially now, very, very local. And it's this new world. How did that sort of go down? Because you were around from the, like, the big boom and then the big bust as well. So there are two things. The first is thinking of social media as communication tools as opposed mm. to an information source. So the way we would communicate, especially in the United States, where we were a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of Twitters and Slacks or an email in general, by the way. Mm. So it, it did change the way we communicated. I mean, I, rec I recall before I started at L'Oreal in 1992, I was writing a paper. I, had, I was doing an MBA at INSEAD in Fontainebleau, and I was doing uh, some research. And I, I remember I wanted to ask an executive at L'Oreal who lived in Paris, who was working in the head office, some, inf some help. And I was informed I should send a fax. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> A fax, oh my. Yeah, I was like, oh wow, a fax is what you want. Okay, as opposed to an email, because at that time I was already sort of email proficient. Yeah. And the, the second thing is less about social media, but more about the generation that's come in with it. Mm. Whereas in the past, certainly for L'Oreal and certainly in France, people tended to want to work at L'Oreal for life. Now we've got a newer generation that are much less inclined to say, well, I'm going to do this for life. In fact, I'd like to have five jobs at the same time, flip in and out as I will, mm. and then move along. The idea of loyalty to a company is, is sort of a grandparently kind of thought. I'm probably hybrided in terms of my age, having done 16 years. And I can say that certainly many people of my age looked at me like, you know, you're, you're silly to stay that long. Yet the, that's part of the older idea of sticking and having a career at one place. So the social media story, I feel, is less about the information that's coming in, but the generation that's coming in with it mm. and how they would rather not think of working at one place for the rest of their lives. Yeah, would you say with that, like with this new generation and the way things are going, like people not wanting to work at one company for life, uh, obviously some people argue company loyalty goes both ways. But with that sort of attitude, they've got four or five jobs. Would you say 
it's a different kind, like the realm of sort of excellence has either been diluted or has it become something else in your mind? Well, I definitely think it's come from something else. I think excellence is, is completely, is not anathema to that mindset. Mm. What is amazing is the, the resourcefulness of this type of generation to be able to do things, find in the network, and, and you can even outsource for other types of expertises and skills you may not have yourself. And it's so much easier to find on Fiverr an agent to help you do some design or, or something which you may not have in-house. And so I think excellence can happen. Afterwards, there are two parts. One is the attention to meaningfulness and doing things that are more meaningful. Because if you have to vie for an individual's attention or even loyalty, mm -hmm. there's a, a, a greater value on doing things that are important. And I don't mean necessarily for the world, but at least for the individual in that individual's community. And if that can feel like you can contribute as an employer to the individual's sense of belonging or sense of purpose in a certain space, let's call it a community, mm. then you have a greater chance of keeping that person's attention and even loyalty down the road. Right. Um, yeah, because you do like, well, you are sort of transcending sort of both of those like type like eras right now because in many respects yes you like 16 years like people go 16 years no no but that's like yeah long term in there like you've gone through the ranks you've seen things like you've grown and you've developed this sort of okay this is who i am within that company when you left like um maybe it was like September the 11th, which was the triggering factor of that, like, but you've become this, now this person, which is now doing, being an author, being a keynote speaker, being a podcast host, um, like over 380 episodes out there at this present time. And you must be delving into that sort of world where you're getting people from Fiverr and you're getting like using many of these people who are sort of bouncing from like bouncing is not the word, right word. I think that's that'd be a little bit me, but sort of having many irons in the fire. If you get what I mean, iron over here doing uh, design, iron here doing marketing and SEO. Yeah. What is that like for yourself personally? What has that been like? So I have, in my, you, you said the expression of a football match of two halves. And yeah. I was thinking about that actually for my L'Oreal career itself, where 2001 was basically right in the middle mm. and indeed demarcated the experience in the beginning to the experience at the end and set me on a projectile that led me to need to leave, to, to, to follow my heart, if you will, or my North, my North Star. Mm. So... In, since 2009, I've been on my own, more or less. And as I looked at this whole notion of digital, and when I was in 2009, I was still, you know, quote unquote, a, a younger person anyway. I mean, I was in my 40s. And I had been living through this and somehow I didn't disassociate myself from the digital generations. Yeah. But it occurred to me that what was necessary was to be digital, not to do digital. 
And I mean, I, I've gone even a step further now. It's now really all about being, not doing, as a sort of a personal statement on life. And, and so when companies were saying, well, like, we're doing our transformation mm. and becoming more digital, they would tend to focus on the activities of digital and less on the being digital, especially as a senior executive. So my experience has been that I wanted to, to be digital. And the way I felt like being digital was I wouldn't outsource any of my activities. I would do the coding. I'm on my blog. I I'm very proficient in HTML five on my podcast. I've been doing it for 10 years in English and in French, and I do my own production post-production. So I'm very proficient in garage band and the different techniques that go into that. When it comes to social media, I manage my own handles and, and therefore I feel like I am digital. Mm. for an older guy and I feel like I own it I am it and so when it comes to doing it in an enterprise no one's going to pull any blind over my eye because I really understand how it works and I think so many people in companies struggle because the executives think they get it because they're smart enough to read the the times the daily telegraph or the financial times or whatever yeah. And they, oh, you know, I, I know everything about AI. Well, well, first of all, it's not, it's not possible. Second of all, you don't. And, and the issues with not really understanding the, the underpinnings of each of these technologies is that you're going to be end up being swayed by other experts who are going to take you on a path that may not be in your best interests. Mm. I take the example of advertising. Over the last few years, advertising has had a little bit of a change. We've moved from print advertising, print no longer really exists, to this digital space. And agencies have suffered tremendously because they didn't themselves move from old to new because they had a business model that made money on doing photo um, photo shoots and and then <laughs> buying space and you know magazines and so on, and then when it came to digital, they were they had trouble monetizing that with their clients. So what would they do? They would keep on proposing to their clients, "Hey, listen, you should still do an ad, double page spread in Vogue." Well, Vogue Vogue might actually still be a good one, but for the most part, they were still struggling with their business model, mm. and so they would give advice to the bosses who were still in an analog world, not actually being digital. And so when the agency would say, for example, oh, you should do a, a great ad in your Facebook and then spam the streams of everybody. Oh, that's a great idea. Well, we can target and we can get great clicks, but no one would stop to tell the boss that you're absolutely spamming and screwing up your reputation by having these crappy ads in infiltrated in the middle of your mobile page yeah like this is the thing with regards to that much of the sort of change with regards to ad agencies i think like and i've looked at this and i've seen this because i've mostly worked in like b2b like the sort of the sort of radical change which has happened to the b2b market where magazines and like um i used to work on the lloyd chicken economist uh, lloyd's list uh, type sort of things and it's the way it's kind of so changed it's like okay um, why do I need your magazine to get this relevant information which I can just simply type into Google 
to get that information. And there are, there's been many a times where I've seen it on many a salesperson's face. He'll be like, um, <laughs> a long pause. And it, like some people go, yeah, but it's the brand it comes under. But it's like, there are, so, as time goes by, there are less and less people who will have that sort of brand royalty. And it's like, I don't, I can get it from Google. I can get it from here. What, like what different, like there is no sort of difference. I just want that information. Tell me <laughs> if you get what I mean. Oh, I do. First of all, so you bring up a couple of points. The first is B2B. Mm. And what I think is marvelous in this new world is that digital is actually even better, in my opinion, for B2B. Mm because it allows for relationships which b2b really thrives on in general because it's b2b there's a much more restricted pool the depth of knowledge in the space is going to be bigger on both sides client and supplier mm. and i think digital can help enhance relationships in this regard um in, in b2b more than it can in b2c where it's a little bit of one to many and therefore a little bit more spammy, as personalized as you think you can get it, it's, it's hard to do. The second thing you mentioned is brand. And it is my conviction that, of course, not for all sectors and all brands, but brands is really about personal relationships. And as a customer, you buy something and you see the brand on it and, and you have a, a relationship with that that feels more emotional. And I think that a lot of these salespeople, underneath these relationships that you have, brand is trust. Mm. And you mentioned the fact that it's two-way before with regard to loyalty between company and employee. I think certainly most employers and many companies anyway, have discarded any trust that they might've had, or at least they've done everything they, in their, <laughs> their way to earn the mistrust that they have. And so I, one of the things that's important in brand development, whatever company you're doing, is to think of through the shoes and the eyes of the other person, the person you're dealing with, and would you like to be treated that way? And then construct trust through not just words, but actions. And I think that the brands of tomorrow, the ones that have that reputation that says, these are the trustworthy people, yeah. they don't, plan to be perfect they they're realistic they stand by their word and they are a trustworthy organization and i think that happens through people not through logos on the page yeah no i agree that no that's a fair point that is a fair point like but like you have like just by this reading some of the information about how you've traveled around the world and everything like this, like with like being like either, sorry, when you said doing like, like digital and being digital, like how do you have the bandwidth to take that all on? Because look, <laughs> podcasts, social media, like basically marketing, then like basically HTML, doing your blog, that is, that is huge. Is it a case of what, is there a particular strategy you take upon it or is there, how do you do that? Well, I probably 
could spend a lot of time on this particular topic. But it's like what I was doing when I was at L'Oreal. I was the senior executive and I was doing a blog while being a senior executive. Outside of the fact that L'Oreal at the time thought that that was not kosher to be having my own blog. So I was being a blogger yeah. at the same time as being a top executive. And when people say I don't have the time today, I think that is one of the, the largest and worst excuses that exists out there. So the issue then becomes, how are you going to prioritize the time that you have? Because I don't know about you, but I only have 24 hours in my day. Mm-hmm. Got to get some sleep in there. Got to do this and that. <laughs> and, and so I have developed a, 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 a really what I call a North Star. And that North Star is a, is a phrase that really guides how I choose what I do. Because we really, you obviously, when I say be, you still have to do things. Mm. And, and one of the key things is knowing why I do what I do. And so when I do something that might be a task that's not that fun, by the way, you know, some of the shit is not that much fun to do <laughs> because it's just, you know, doing it. It's, yeah. it's like opening up a, a bill you have to pay. You just have to do it. But if I know why I'm paying the bill, if I know why I'm doing the podcast, that gives me an extra energy. So when I'm doing stuff, I'm laser-like in my energy because it's really cool. I'm really into it. I'm really getting out of it what I want. If it's not clear what you want to get out of it, then it becomes awfully vague. And then things like lethargy, laziness, and burnout happen because it's not giving you back the energy that you're putting into it. So in the end of the day, by having a clear idea of what I'm about and how I want to live my life, I am motivated to get up at 5.30 in the morning, jump out of bed, get, well, you know, I I jump less and less because of age, but I get out of bed, I have this cup of coffee, I listen to the birds, I listen to my body, I meditate, and then I write. And I, I so enjoy the experience of writing. And then at another hour or two later, of course, people start appearing, you know, whether it's on social media, because I'm very active on social media mm. and, you know, my family and I, I, I take care of that as well by being on my own terms, which allows me a lot more flexibility. I make sure that every day I have time for me. So I'm not just doing other stuff. And that's also important, I think, in terms of a mental health space. So I make sure that I, I do my exercises. I start with meditation. I try to walk one and a half hours a day. And I generally play 30 minutes of guitar every day. And these are the things that I would say articulate my giving me energy, me time. Mm. And then I have the activities I'm doing elsewhere. And I have two leitmotifs for the way I operate and just two. One is give away content that is valuable to other people every day. And the second is meet somebody new every day, uh, five days a week. And those people I, I, I visualize by having as a green encounter in my calendar. So I, I have a, cal- a color-coded calendar that shows when I'm meeting somebody new like you today, my green person and it's I'm not dogmatic about it because I there are days when 
it's not possible mm. you know you know but i i consider things like if i'm going on a trip maybe i'm going to meet somebody in the airplane so i consider that as an opportunity for greenness because if i'm on a 12-hour flight it might be hard to do it in the tube on the way there but maybe on the flight i might be able to do it. so the purpose of the first thing is giving away valuable material i think of that as a business development idea but in a very karmic manner i don't expect to give value and then get immediately some return i think i drop it out like let's say bottles in the ocean with messages and then the other thing is meeting somebody new which outside of the pleasure of discovering somebody else is also making me flex my empathic muscle to figure out more about the other person and expand my mind to other situations so that when I'm by myself, I have more frames of reference for how I operate. And that allows me, I feel, to be much more open, much more diverse in my thinking. And ultimately, it turns me on, so. Uh, this is the thing, doing the green, like doing the green and meeting someone new, like, okay, it, like the way I've always seen it, like as I've gone, gone older myself over the time, like it feels like when, like when you're a kid, you're meeting new people all the time, everything like this. It still continues into your teenage years, and you're kind of doing that in your twenties. Then your thirties hit you're doing that less and less and like basically it comes down to opportunities people you used to hang out with uh, like raising their families and doing all of that then your 40s it's like you've you've got you've got your solid crew that is my crew of people like yeah what's gonna happen with this crew well basically we'll like we'll grow together we'll keep in contact and like uh, hey when you see each other go hey How's the family doing? <laughs> doing good. But then it just pretty much stops. And like it's like one of those things, trying to force yourself to meet new people is one of the hardest things uh, for people to do as time goes on. I think like when you do like when you do meet new people and communicate, it helps. I would say keep you young at heart in many respects. Thousand uh, percent. Yeah. So Oh, with that, it's like, okay, with this, it's like, you've got, like, you've gone through all of this, you're keeping yourself fresh, you're keeping yourself going, like, you're, like, doing your blog, and, like, yeah, when did you start, decide, I'm going to become an author, it was like, I'm going to become an author, or how did that happen? Well, so, there's a really long story. The short, <laughs> the short story is, I went to university in America, and I studied literature, Yes, my major and either though back in those days I was reading a book a day and I've written probably about 150 short stories I've written an unpublished novel I've written 19 songs and oodles of poems so I feel in my life I've always been a writer somehow I just not necessarily a published writer, although a few of the poems got published and whatever, and a few short stories. So I've always felt like I'm a writer moving into the author, if you will, published space. Yeah. That, 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 that's the long story. And bottom line was when I was 18, I had described 
six different things that I felt that would mean that I achieved my life. And one of them was having a published book that sold, right? So it had to be so bought by somebody, <laughs> not just my mother, hopefully. <laughs> I, who is, I sold six copies and I bought them all, son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have five brothers. Um, I know, but um, so uh, then the idea of doing a book um, happened and it, that, that particular book was going to be a business book and it was going to be a, basically the book of my life in business. Mm. And I started writing it. I went to Croatia for uh, six, well, it was a good, a good period of time to, to really get down a huge chunk of it. And then all of a sudden I got a Skype message and this is in 2014 in March of 2014, this Skype was from this guy called Josh. And he said, hey, mentor, do you remember me? It's Josh. Nope. <laughs> nope. I you know, I, you know, definitely knew what Skype was and all that, but I didn't, didn't recall Josh. We met 13 years ago. Well, that explains it. Uh, wait, did we meet in a bar in New York City on a Tuesday afternoon. It was an Irish pub in Manhattan. Yeah, that's the one. Aha. Uh -huh. So Josh on that Tuesday afternoon was a 23-year-old film student at Columbia. And the afternoon in question was the 11th of September, 2001. And our meeting was set for 3 p.m. And it had been set several months before. So if you can imagine, I was running this company called Redken Worldwide. My offices overlooked the Twin Towers. I saw the first explosion in front of my eyes. I saw the second airplane fly all the way down and in. And experienced New York in a very different manner. I mean, the whole experience. And I maintained that meeting with Josh. And that day we talked about important stuff because mm. we still had the, let's say the, the, well, the streets were empty. The, it was very macabre. I had four friends who were missing or many more missing that first day to be exact, but four friends ended up being killed. And, and that day we talked about film because that's what he was doing. And he was asking me, 37 year old, quote unquote, big swinging dick, you know, how do you make a life, a living and all that? And, and so that's what we exchanged. 13 years later, Josh says, hey, it's me, it's Josh. Do you remember me? I'm now a bona fide film director. I've done three feature length films. I've never forgotten the afternoon I met you. Can we, can I do your film? And that is how I ended up actually doing producing my documentary film the last ring home and writing my first published book so wow no because i was about to go like how on earth could you remember the date so clearly but well, like good god that day yeah um like i remember the day clearly but i was not in new york I, like this is how it went for me. I, I was at home. Um, there's a TV show called Diagnosis Murder. Like, I was like, yeah, I put that, I was about 
put it on because it was afternoon here in London. And then it was like, yes, yeah, so I playing through into the Twin Towers. I was like, that that's odd. It seems like a very clear day and everything like this. I was like, yeah. Uh, I can't remember how much time passed, but then when it was like a second plane flew in and it was just like going, oh no, that was no accident. And like, I, like, I was sitting there shocked. Um, like for you to see that go on, but then to like still go, yeah, Josh, yeah, we have this meeting, let, let's still meet up. While I've got to say, you're in the epicenter of when, like, basically where the world's kind of losing its mind at that present time because nothing, I couldn't call people in America or anything like that. That is, that is definitely something different. Why did you do the meeting still in the afternoon? Why? Well, it was a complicated day. And, um, I would say, <laughs> yeah, my father actually had come to visit us and he was someone who I used to only see every other year. And he happened to come the night before for dinner. And mm. so we had our biannual, um, dinner the night before. And we talked about the Yankees and the good weather and so on. Turned out that evening, I also had a 300 page manuscript that I was sitting on. That was the life of his father, who, whom he, he never knew. And uh, I wasn't in a position, or he certainly wasn't in a position to want to receive who his father was, because he was killed as a prisoner of war in the, of the Japanese in the Second World War. Uh, and so I'm sitting on this manuscript, and my father's plane is canceled the next day. So he ends up coming back for dinner the night of the 12th of September. And we have that, um, let's say, the big, the big aha moment where I end up telling him for 10 years I've been researching who his father was and who his mother was. Mm. And that becomes the subject of the book. The meeting with Josh was in the afternoon and the offices were closed down um, around about lunchtime. Mm. Communications were very difficult. And my wife was away trying to pick up the children. So I had nothing specifically needed to be done sitting alone at home, mm. watching the news. And it just occurred to me that this would be a good moment to meet this young, at the point, kid, if you will. Yeah. And, and we maintained it. And, and by the way, it was an opportunity to talk about stuff and sometimes when you meet a stranger, you can talk so much more liberally. Mm. Anyway, I decided to maintain it. And after, at five o'clock, I walked home from where we were, 47th Street, up to our home on 77th Street. And then life, certainly things continued on, but in a very strange way. And it was just a decision I, I said I, I maintained it in the morning. At that time, we didn't know what was going to go on. And then at one point, well, there was no alternative because we couldn't communicate anyway. So we just maintained it. And, and the pub stayed open, by the way, that was, <laughs> it was empty. And we were able to be served um, a couple of pints of Guinness. Okay. This is right. Okay. Good conversation over a pint or two of Guinness. And yeah. Wow. Won't be forgetting that one anytime soon.
No, I don't think uh, many of us would, but like, yeah, but being in the epicenter of it all, no, but like, yeah, more power to you to like have the composure to like keep calm and carry on. And yeah. I'll tell you another thing that happened that week, which I mean, I, I've got a new book coming out, by the way, which is going to be on leadership. And, and I talk about these ideas of, of maintaining your north direction, where, where lots of winds of change are buffeting us daily. And whether it's a COVID pandemic or an issue, a political issue, Black Lives Matter, whatever, is coming around and changing your situation, maybe your worldview. I've always wanted to keep my focus on what I'm trying to do. And um, so I'm running this company, Redken, which is a hair company and selling to professional hairdressers. And we had our campaigns for 2002 set up. Many of these campaigns were for hair care, some for styling and others for hair color. Anyway, being a New York based brand, we always had iconic New York imagery. So that would be either architecture, it could have been a yellow cab, but in any event, we always wanted to have a sort of New York feeling to our imagery. Two of the campaigns we had for 2002 were for styling products that had the twin towers in the background. And on the morning of the 13th of September, having just gone off the phone with the CEO who said that I had to go to Paris, which is complicated because there were no planes at the time yeah. flying. I had to call up the individual who was responsible for retouching our photographs. And the shaggy dog element of this story is that our photographs were all digital and had been stored in a server underneath Twin Tower number seven, which was tower number seven, which was just off to the north and ended up being condemned at 2.30 that afternoon. And as a result, all our retouched imagery in the digital data bank and the servers underneath tower number seven um, were destroyed. And so we had to go to a backup photograph. And so I had to go to the retoucher to ask him to retouch the girls to make their hair and all the image, the face and all that perfect as we like to do with great superficiality. And the second thing I had to ask him to do was to rub out the twin towers in the background of two of the images, knowing that this guy with whom I worked quite a lot, worked in a small-ish town outside in New Jersey where there were more than a hundred people missing. And obviously he would have known many of them. And he paused. So Minter, just one question. What floor would you like me to rub it out till? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's something I would not want to even broach. I wouldn't, like, especially right there and then, like, being absolutely fresh, like, yeah, 100 people missing, uh, where they're, like, if he doesn't know them, he's definitely going to know families of families who are going to know them. And it's like, yeah, that. That is not as a thing. What did you like? What did you say? Did uh, did you tell him to like? What did you say? 
Well, I paused heavily. I didn't, I, I just couldn't say a floor. It just felt far too inhuman to look at it that way. It was, by the way, I felt very inhuman in the first place, asking him mm. to rub out the Twin Towers so we could sell some more gels. You know, it just didn't feel right in general, but at the same time, I knew I couldn't have the Twin Towers in the background mm. of an advertising you know, image that would be sent around the world. So we just talked about making it less visible, not recognizable mm. in the background. And um, then he had to do that and executed it over the next 48 hours. But that, that's rather gruesome work. To have. I'm gruesome. All things are relative. It's not like he was picking bodies out of a, of a grave. I would call that gruesome. But it certainly didn't feel far removed from that feeling. And then going to, I got on a plane on the morning of the 15th of September. It was the very first plane, non-military, to take off from the New York area. And I went to a small little airport called Islip on Long Island. And at eight o'clock boarded a private plane, which had been commandeered for me to fly basically by myself mm. to Paris to deliver a two hour, 15 minute speech about the future of my brand and how we were gonna make money over the next three years. I'm, I'm very surprised they actually still made you go through with that, especially it's, because that is going to be the last thing which is on your mind. And like, I, look, I don't think it's going to be the last thing which is going to be on anyone else's mind who's like listening to the speech. It's just like, look, uh, yeah, you just saw what happened. The whole world just saw what happened. And okay, I understand life has to go on. But <laughs> uh, like four days after the actual like, main event went down, um, you could you can give it a week or two. Uh, if the world is like, I don't think the world's going to really give two dams about any product at this present time. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, but what were they thinking? Uh, like, it's not, I'm sorry, but well, so uh, I mean, I could throw them under the bus easily, but I'm not going to because I think one of the things that's interesting is to figure out how to deal with crisis situations. Yeah. And, and like you say, the world must go on. And I think that during this pandemic, which has the world has never seen before, there's also the idea of how are we going to keep going? Mm. And as I mentioned a little bit to you before we got into recording, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for people to refocus on producing things to sell to people to make money. It's going to feel a little bit crass in light of everything that's going on. Yeah. Like this is a thing. Uh, yeah. As we were speaking beforehand and like, I was like talking, we were talking about what the future sort of economic landscape might be. And I said, it looks like it's going to be a U recession. You said it's look, it's looking like it's going to be an L recession. And like, this is the thing like you is like bad enough uh when you say l that's just like okay you don't see uh, it coming back uh well not exactly like it was before but you don't see it coming back for like what sort of time scale are you thinking yourself 
So I don't know into the future, but what I think of is how to make decisions and keep on, carry on, if we do in, in Britain, we like to say. Yes. And I think there is a need to carry on. So as I said, without throwing people under the bus, there is a need to know how to go through turmoil, turbulence, shit. Mm. And, and the reality is shit always exists. Unexpected is there with great anticipation all the time. And mm. so the thing that's interesting to me in the, our particular period now is thinking about how to navigate through this sort of turbulence. And I have, I'm, I'm doubling down on this one concept, which is to do things that matter. I've been on this trip now for having done my documentary film about the Second World War and talked to 130 veterans, many of whom were prisoners of the Japanese who mm -hmm. saw their friends tortured to death. You start thinking, well, life's a little bit more than just making a buck or two. Mm. You, you, you need a buck. <laughs> Mark my words. We're good on that. Yet, would I rather make that buck doing things that matter than just doing things in order to pay the bills? Mm. Of course, you have to be pragmatic about that. So in the pragmatism, how do you orient yourself to make sure you're doing things that matter? And, and that takes a little bit of work on oneself to really pause and think what's important to you, not just yeah, 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 and not generalizations. Very specifically for each person, what is specifically important to them and then why is that important to them? And then once you have that as a business, then you need to immediately double down and go back in. We can't just wait for this thing to go over because if it's not this thing it's going to be another thing and we're going to be moving from one crisis to another and sure this is a big one i can tell you that september 11 felt like a big one maybe there are different wars the black lives matter there are very big things out there mm. and unless you're attached to some North Star that's going to be a guiding principle, it's going to be very easy for you to be knocked off your horse and, and not have that energy to go forth and, and plow on. So what I doubled down on that week of September 11, that was a Tuesday onwards, is thinking about what's important for the company I'm running and why is that important to me? And, and of course, I didn't invent this. I just reattached myself to what's important about selling shampoos and conditioners and color, which of course wasn't the product, but it was what it was doing for the customers mm. who were the hairdressers who need to be in business because they have families to raise. And they're also making some people happy because the visit of a hairdresser is such an important element of many people's lives that that's what I felt I was doing as opposed to just flogging another shampoo. And so when you're in this situation that we are today, it can be very simple, very easy for us to sort of either get lost, go with wherever the wind is blowing mm -hmm. or um, figure out what is more meaningful and then make sure that that is, there's always a part of every day you do that's meaningful. 
which is why I have my green meeting, for example, every day. It's a meaningful thing and it's meaningful because it's visual. I mean, so I, I, I pay attention. I don't just click another meeting new in, I, I change the color. And these little nudges remind me of what's important. And I think it's important that we all figure out what is important for us, what matters, and make sure that we're doing some part of every day has some of this meaningfulness in it. Because by the way, of course, I'm not saying you need to be meaningful 100% of the time and all that sort of dogma. It's about trying to make sure that you're getting back energy for the energy that you're expending. Because everything takes energy. I mean, everything is energy. So if you can do some stuff that are a little bit more energy giving to you, which by the way, usually means doing things for others, then you will be in a better position. And that is, I think, um, how I get to do what I do and, and how I still have whatever energy I have every morning getting jumping out of bed. <laughs> yeah, no, like this, that's great. I'm loving that. Like with this, like did that, how did that sort of like come about? Like doing stuff for others, was that sort of like, did that come through your meditation? Was it September, like was it September the 11th what did that? Or was it something a little bit like further, like before that sort of like to really sort of spur you on? Because yeah, like meeting new people, like trying to meet new people like five days out of a week, that's like, that is a big task for many a person like learning new skills and making sure you're on top of things, that's another thing, which is also a big thing. And like basically, look, I don't know about you, like I'm, I'm not making any documentaries anytime soon where I interview over 150 people, like from like the Second World War. Like, so what, like, yeah, where did it come from? How? Slow burn, a slow burn. I can't say overnight that I figured this out. I. Um, it's become in, appallingly clear to me how many years I wasted, but you know, this is what it is. And, um, and I, and I'm really trying to dose the idea because I don't want to be every moment all the time obsessed by this because otherwise then I'll end up not really doing anything otherwise. You still need to pay the bills and, yeah. and uh, you know, do the shopping and all that stuff, which isn't necessarily feeding this sort of bigger thing. So how did it come about. So at now at 55 years old, I can look back and I think that there are some epic, if not epical moments that helped to transition me into really thinking that this was key. Mm. And, and one very starting point was back at university and having the pleasure of and privilege of studying in the United States for having been at school in England before. What that allowed me to do was study whatever I wanted to study. I didn't feel the need to study that which was going to become my profession. Mm. I studied that which was appealing to me, and in particular, it was trilingual literature. My minor was women's studies. And, of course, there could have been ulterior motives that people like to jump to. Turns out that the way I got into it was that I, I, I was studying literature, and I, the one course was, what is a feminine narrative? And, and that got me into, oh, you can actually read a book through other people's eyes. Yeah. Which led me to expand my thought uh, to diversity in general. And, and then, therefore, thinking about others. And certainly as a privileged white male, 
it, it, it's, it, it's easy not to, because everything's come to me on some gaudy silver spoon. And I can't say I spent my life thinking about others, but I, I started, that, I think that began my journey. Then, then I had other step changes that really sort of layered in. And from 19, so I, I, I worked in an investment bank out of Yale. Mm-hmm. And then I bought a company. I, I worked on, um, I, I, did, I started up an entrepreneur company and then my company, my, both of them went bankrupt. And, and so I, I ended up with nothing back at home for the first time since I was seven years old and, and reconfiguring my life. And I worked at a zoo and then I worked in an aquarium. I wrote an unpublished novel and I, I sort of and I started exploring. I started teaching tennis again. And then I went to business school and uh, that sort of straightened out. That's how I got into L'Oreal and spent 16 years. So I had a very sort of all over the place experience. And, and I, I just enjoyed the, the journey of discovery. And that allowed me to explore what it's like to be a zookeeper and what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And, and, and I don't know, I, I feel like um, I've been very lucky. And maybe I've created some of my own luck because I think you do need to work at this. And, and uh, so there's some intentionality that's now really layered into it. But at one point, I, I think really the, the movement into 2001, running this company, Redken, which was a beautiful company inside of L'Oreal, which generally isn't quite the case for the other brands, but it had within it this purpose of helping hairdressers live a better life and earn a better living. And then in a professional space, it felt like it was possible. You didn't just have to do it, you know, charity work on a weekend. It could be possible within the context of a professional career. There we go. Yeah. But I'm going to, with what you just said, there's one bit where I'm going to have to say I have issue with what you said. Okay. Look, okay. And there are many a person what like bangs on about white privilege and says white privilege this, white privilege that. Now, that might be if if you were coming from a circumstance where it was like purely nepotism, it's like my daddy owns a company, here I go. That, then I can like go, okay, right, yeah, you you had everything given to you type of like situation. But like <laughs> look, just like just before the L'Oreal's like stuff, like you go, oh yeah, I started a business that didn't work out. Started to another one that didn't work out. I was a zookeeper, like yeah, teaching tennis. Then like yeah, I went back, did business school, then got into L'Oreal. Like yeah, worked my hind parts off for sixteen years before like okay, then moving on to like doing like your, the second stage of your like your career where like, yeah, you've become an author. Yeah. You've come, become a podcaster, like blogger, like, yeah. Or like author again for like, I think three books or is it four books? Three published, one more coming in January. Yeah. And yeah, doing a documentary that is like, just from our brief interaction, it's not like you've just had it handed to it. You've got off your, like you've got off your hind parts, which look, there are many a person which might 
have everything given to them, but they don't actually put, they don't put, how can I say, the rubber to the tarmac to make things happen. You have. And so look, I look, don't get me wrong. Like some people will go, yeah, but you're a right guy and stuff like this. But no, you've done the hard work. And like, look, sometimes it's worked out. Other times it hasn't. And like, you've learned from that and you keep moving forward. And like, look, we are in planet lockdown at this moment in time. Partial lockdown, lockdown. It's <laughs> crazy times, but you've actually gone out and done the hard work. I, that's what I have issue with. Like, it's nothing to do with privilege. You've done the hard work. You've made things happen. Look, doing over 300 pod, like over 380 podcasts, like everyone looks at a podcast like, oh, you just chat and everything like that. No, you, like you've got to source people. You've got to speak to people. Like, yeah, like you've got to sometimes turn some people away because like, yeah, you know, they've got like some like bullshit program, which they're trying to sell for $997. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You've done the hard work. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you one other thing that's, um, animated my life when i say animated it's brought animus it's brought energy to it mm. and and uh and it's a much lighter although it's got a little bit of a thick twist to it topic which is music mm. and i i generally would characterize myself as more of an intellectual i read a couple of books well every week and i a step to date i'm curious i have rigor when it comes to writing but i've also i mean I'll, oh i should have to say i have 18 years of rugger in my in my head uh including seven concussions and so that's another chapter but the, the music piece so i've been i've been playing guitar since i was 17 years old and and i've always enjoyed singing and and doing that and at one point i discovered a uh, sort of music that no one else knew about except for this one guy called Mark who who introduced it to me mm. and I, I said this is really interesting music and and I turned out so I, I ended up really becoming a fan of this group I've been in my life uh, time to uh, about 200 concerts of this group uh, of the 800 or so that I've done in my life, 800 concerts, I've been to 200 of this one group. And they are a, a meaningful group for me. Yeah. Not just because I like their music, not just because I like the gang that I hang out with, but for what they have instilled in me. And it's a little bit of a joie de vivre concept. So while there might be the pall of living under the privileged mantle this group gave me the idea that one should always be grateful mm. and uh and and there's a free spiritedness to that and so their concerts would be were always five hours long and and you would spend all the time dancing oftentimes with whomever uh and in, in a very that's not me <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, there we go. It's it's disappeared. Um, so anyway, this um, the band 
um, was also interesting because what they were doing was how to be grateful in the face of the fact that we live finite lives. And rather than be fearful of the end, embrace the end. And the more you're able to embrace the end, the more grateful you are about the living today. So that was the culture of the band and it was called the Grateful Dead. And they are a very North American thing. I learned about them through Mark while I was at school in England. And, and I became infatuated with them. So, and I still play some of their music every day. I certainly listen to their music every day. And it, it, it rhythms my sense of energy and reminds me to be grateful as much as possible despite all the shit that might be happening. So deadhead, okay, I like it. You know what the expression is. Yes, uh, so like, yeah, wall of sound, or like you yeah, were yeah, you're good, yeah, that's right. Ah, oh, good, oh, wow, I did the thing. Uh, like, let's just say the, like, the Grateful Dead concerts were very famous for many a thing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> We'll leave it at that. <laughs> we are going to, anyone who knows the Grateful Dead should know. But yeah, 200 dead concerts. Wow. That is, a, that is an achievement in itself. So like, what was the first uh, Grateful Dead concert you went to? 1981 was a, an escape from school and uh, went to the Rainbow Theatre in West London and um, was driven in a, in a mini by a friend who was about six foot six. I think he had his head sticking out the top and um, we're all playing on the rugby team. And um, we went and, and that was my first time I ever saw them. So I was 17 years old uh, when I saw them and, and uh, what a marvelous, beginning because there are really only a few hundred people there. In any event, I, I know that I spent a portion of the evening just with my elbows on the stage, looking up at them with their sound, wall of sound behind them and uh, just smiling and watching them play. Then I move away. There was no need of holding the real estate. It was just a, you move in, you move out, you dance, you, you go get something to drink, because you know, you got a, you got a while. And you just you know you go, go pee. So you, you didn't feel like you had to camp out. Yeah. I find that sort of very distressing to feel like you have to own the space and that's where you want to watch it from. We generally when we go see a dead show, especially for the dancers amongst us, you don't want to sit at your seat. Even the, uh, now that I'm getting older, <laughs> I need a seat. But it was just about twirling and dancing within the concert alleyways or fills outdoors, wherever we were. Yeah, that was my first one. Ah, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, my Lord. So, oh, so what was your, like, was that the most memorable concert? of the dead you went to, or was there, <laughs> oh, the way, the look on your face right there, it says you got a story or two. So, like, dare I ask, what was, like, the most memorable dead concert you went to? Well, it sort of depends on the public. Okay. But... I can, I can, I'll, I mean, I have so many stories, you know, in fact, I, I've been to probably 300, but I didn't get tickets all the time. 
Mm. So, you, so there are those you got into, then those you didn't get into because you didn't have a ticket and, and stuff like that. The most memorable one for me was um, when I was working on Wall Street and with a bunch of absolutely prototypical Wall Streeters who generally had crew cut hair and all that, yeah. but were underneath or underneath their suit and tie had tie dyes. Anyway, so we hired with Wall Street type money, a silver bus. And the silver bus had these engines that sounded like those massive motorboats that gurgle as they rumble. And, and there we were in the silver bus that was highly decked out for rock and roll bands. And we traveled in this bus. We did maybe four concerts. And so at the end of every show, we got tickets, by the way, for this one. We, at the end of every show was, where is the silver bus? Where is the silver bus? Are you on the bus? Yeah. We had a good time. Okay, that must be quite surreal. I just I go, okay, yes, we're all Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. And like it's like yeah, you're going to the dead like you're going to the dead concert? Yes, yes we are. And this is what we're going in. It must be like it must have been quite a sight to sort of pull up in that. Well um, we we certainly but we didn't look like Wall Streeters uh, either on the bus or getting off the bus. We Sure. I, I was always well equipped for that type of life. And I generally had my hair longer, even though while I was working on Wall Street. And I mean, for one, one point, I, I know I had an earring, but I, I think I had to kill that for Wall Street days. Yeah. But I, so I was, you know, I've always had a tie dye very close somewhere. But <laughs> That's to remind me what's important in life. Ah, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, that must have been quite a sort of change from like uh, coming from sort of Eaton to sort of like into this because uh, look, Eaton, top hat, tail, like it's like I've, I've seen the pictures. I've never been there, but yeah, <laughs> going from that sort of world into that must have been quite sort of trippy at the time. Excuse mm, me. <laughs> right. Well, I've always enjoyed swinging in and out of different environments yeah. and um, and that includes you know when i when my travel agency for musicians by the way uh, went bankrupt i was living with my two associates on roughly a dollar 25 a day and that lasted for about six months as we tried to fend off the the, uh, the feds and bankruptcy in general and we lived on 14th and Harvard Northwest. So I lived on Harvard despite Yale, you know, just, just kidding. But um, Harvard Northwest. I'm proud to say Harvard. Yeah, I know it's a swear word. But Harvard Northwest of Washington, D.C. at that time mm. was very much black D.C. And so uh, they always called me the honky. And I had developed a, a very wonderful relationship in that environment um, and, and felt part of the community, uh, even uh, despite all appearances. And um, anyway, that was a, a very different experience where you really understand what the value of money is and how much can a buck 25 get you? Because mm. I couldn't afford to pay for the bus 
down to the head office. So I had to walk or we biked or whatever. There was different ways. But um, and when it's uh, about 40 degrees Celsius outdoors, that's a that's a that's a hassle. And it was actually downhill on the way, but it was uphill on the way back. And so, you know, you would sweat a lot. And um, anyway, that and learn how to make every dollar go as far as it could. So there was some, I've, I've, I've experienced different things, mostly extremely lucky and privileged, but I've also had the chance to go down and figure out that things aren't necessarily always going to be easy. Mm. Yeah. So living in Washington, D.C., like having a failing business, unfortunately, on $1.25, what was like, what were some of the sort of biggest lessons you think you learned from that scenario? Well, um, the first one was cash is pretty useful. Mm. Uh, when you're running a business, cash, cash flow. And um, despite all appearances, getting a loan was just not possible back in, this is 1991, when in the United States, they had a savings and loans yeah. crisis that was sparked by the Gulf War, which impacted travel, which was my business. And, and of course it also impacted the tours because we were doing music, we were doing the travel for musicians and entertainers. Anyway, cash, cash was king was a pretty big one. The second one is mind who you go into business with. It really doesn't matter the idea so much, but boy, does it count who you go into business with because when the shit hits the proverbial fan, Mm. you you need to be able to rely on one another and, and and not only rely on one another but feel like you can be complementary in in how you operate and so if you're all extremely like-minded that's just not a good place to be if you don't trust each other that's not a good place to be and uh yeah those are the, i'd say those are the two most valuable lessons i learned or to have a like a brother in arms in other words while you're in the trenches that's or, it it's amazing how going through a tough situation when when life is threatened it it does have a way of stripping away a lot of things and zeroing in on what counts and for having spent a lot of time with people who've been at war and seen a friend of theirs head blown off mm. you you really start to reconfigure what's important in in you know hard times and uh not that you know going out of business was that kind of an experience yeah. but it, it certainly made me aware of how important it was to have a strong partnership and in my case not not a good one because we didn't see eye to eye and we certainly weren't complementary enough in our abilities to get through it mm. Because, like, would you say right now you're more of a, like, a solo entrepreneur rather than a team entrepreneur? Uh, right. So, yes, in material terms, yes, I'm a solopreneur. Mm -hmm. However, I've constructed my life around my network. And so while I may have my own P&L, mm -hmm. um, my wife helps me immensely. And so she's part of the duopreneur, really, what it comes down to. But I've always considered myself part of a network, a node within a group. 
And, and so if I have a client who needs something, I can bring in other people and then vice versa and so on. So yeah, I'm, I'm a sole trader by and large, but I've always thought about it as a, a group effort. Uh, so basically working with your network, like basically helping people within that network, then ultimately, as you said earlier, it's about like helping others and then eventually, not directly, not necessarily, it comes back and feed like feeds into yourself somehow. Like like when people often say that, they expect to give one and take one, or in other like in some terms, give one and receive two, which <laughs> which you kind of like go, you can't like you can't always take, take, take. If if you're giving just to take, it's not gonna actually work out at all. I mean, life is is full of give and take, so to speak. And uh, I mean, for example, you know, marriage, and you need to know how to to give, and you need to know how to receive. By the way, mm. it's, if someone wants to give you love, you need to know how to accept that love as opposed to reject it, or maybe I'm not worthy of it, or whatever else, feelings that can go into that. So it's a lot, it's, there's a nuance within that. But generally speaking, I, I, my new book, I talk about the Czech mentality and the K of the Czech, C-H-E-C-K, stands mm. for karma, which broadly speaking, I'm looking at is give, and then maybe things will return. Okay, great. I've got to say, I, I feel a little bit more enlightened as we've had this conversation so far. It's been great. I'm loving it. Um, yeah. Um, sort of jumping off to the left, you, like, like something which has intrigued me. Uh, you recently had a Voice of the World. You, yeah. yeah. How did that go? Because the reason why I asked, partly because I work in, I worked, I work in events. I, still working events <laughs> how, like how was that how how did how did it work out so this was a, a festival yeah we call it a festival podcast festival designed to highlight the power of audio and podcasts in general mm -hmm. around the world and uh co-founded it with my two partners sam sethi and andrew grill and we, we really had a great time. It, it's amazing. We, we weren't in it to make money. We were in it to have an experience. And part of the experience was to attempt to configure an online event that was as ballsy as you could ever get, where, the, where people at the end were saying, oh my God, that was great. I wish it went on longer which is so not the case for most online events because it's very difficult to engage people through just a little camera, just a, an audio recording and, and keep people in their seats when on top of other things today in lockdown-ish mode, you've got to walk the dog, you've got to feed the, the family or, or you have to do other errands. So we have many competing things, not to mention notifications and other things, you know, maybe had to do work. 
So we, that was our objective. And we wanted to have a crew of speakers who were delightful, delicious, and we wanted them to feel like they had a good time. Mm. So that was also a part of our gambit. And then we, um, as a team, we made sure that we invested in it, the, the monies that were needed to attract the talent, to have the right production team, and to make it as good an experience as possible. So overall, it went well. We had some great sponsors. We, and I think the sponsors were happy with the experience, at least for the ones that I was personally responsible for. They were satisfied with it and um, came out learning that, well, how to run a good conference online, what we can do better for the future. We can always improve. And, um, and then met some just scintillating great people doing really great shit through podcasting. Excellent. It's out, it sounds like you're very happy with the results and it seems like uh, the second conference might be coming along uh, before the end of this year. Uh, Don't know about that. I, I can't say we're, we're pondering how to do it because as things change, the environment for doing festivals is different and we need to think smartly about it because it is an massive investment of time and money, by the way, in order to put it on. And so we want to think carefully about how we do it. Let's say if it stopped here, we're happy. If we can continue on, it's got to be a sustainable business, which means that we do need to make money. You can't just sort of do things karmically, if you will, forever. Um, you do need to make sure that there is a, a, a method uh, to make it sustainable, including profitable. Yeah. Would you say it's more fun hosting the show or just like speaking at the show? Well, I, I, I love interviewing and, and um, I enjoy the experience. In the end of the day, that's just a little tip of the iceberg. And so the, the work that goes into it is, is massive. It's six weeks, not full on, but very intense because they're doing other things. Like at this time I was writing a book and you know, managing to do other things and still playing guitar and walking mm -hmm. and so on. But um, uh, working with a team that's fun to work with, where you feel like you're challenged and challenging, that's, you can grow from that, learning about how to put on a great conference. Then the actual moment of putting it on, it's in the, it's the, the show must go on, that you're in the highlight, the limelight, sure, at least I was not in the limelight because the speakers were in the limelight, but we're, we're, at, we're in the intense moment of it's happening. Yeah, I've always enjoyed the moment of the performance. Oh. It's like, like when you're on a team, you play in a sport, yeah. you, you've got more or less six days of training and then 80 minutes on the pitch. Well, rugby anyway. <laughs> so you better enjoy the six days of training because yes. it's just to focus on the 80 minutes. You know, by the way, you can be switched out. You, know, you may be on the bench or not. You need to have enjoyment. And just like a book, by the way, you know, like writing a book, it's a huge slog to write a book. If you don't like writing, don't write. Because if you're doing it just to be famous or doing it just to sell your six copies, it's not worth it. You really need to enjoy the whole process, including the introspective moments where you think about yourself. What are you trying to do? These are, these are growing moments. These are really 
you know, make it a more interesting experience. Excellent. Brilliant. Like, I have to ask, um, if, you had, if you had the power to change something in the world, what would that thing be? Well, it's not politically correct, but I would like to not have to rely on religion to be good. Not rely on religion to be good. I see. Uh, may I ask why that? So I, I, I have a philosophy in life. I've actually written my own religion per se. But I, I think what's important is being accountable and uh, holding oneself accountable. Mm. And I think of that as a, it's a modus operandi for me in my life. And it, I want to be accountable to me in the mirror. Yeah. Not some other item, thing, uh, God. And uh, I think that relying on that, you know, I'll, I'll get better in the next life or I can go get all my sins wiped out or doing it for this other potentially existing thing, because I, I would characterize it as potentially existing thing um, at best. It seems like a, a less useful way of spending time. I, I'd rather spend my time doing things that are good, being good in my mind intentionally, where my intentions are what counts. Of course, you have to execute to that. And then um, I think we, we'd be better off because I don't really subscribe to one person's God being better than another. I don't subscribe to God in general. And I certainly don't subscribe to the need to believe that my God is better than yours. Brilliant. Brilliant. I don't know if it's brilliant. It's just my opinion. It's, oh. it's the way I roll. Oh, like, hey, and you roll well, sir. You roll well indeed. I've got to say, I've had a delightful time uh, with you on this conversation. It's been uh, a pleasure. And it's been an honor for myself. Uh, myself? Myself. <laughs> um, I speak the lingo. I speak the lingo. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, would you be able to tell the lovely people out there how they can find you? Well, I have been blessed, not by God, but by my two parents who gave me a weird name. Um, so easily findable on Google, type in Minter, M-I-N-T-E-R, dial, D-I-A-L, dot com, M-Dial on most social media, M-D-I-A-L, which also in Spanish is Mundial, it's a short for world, worldwide, which I feel very appropriate. Otherwise, my podcast is called Minter Dialogue. Um, my books, all that are on Amazon. And uh, yeah, that's, that's it. I'm, I'm quite findable. Perfect. While well, also do, I'll put all your contact details in the show notes as well. So yeah, people can reach out, get in contact with this man. Get in contact with him. You will learn a lot of shit, as they say. Yes. Um, it's been good. a pleasure. Yes. Minta, pleasure speaking to you today. today. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It has been a delight and pleasure. I will get you back on definitely for the future. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about for sure. In touch. <laughs> thank you so much. No problem. And I'd like to say thank you to you, my friends, my life warriors, who are still watching at this moment in time. I say stay safe, stay well, be excellent, be awesome, be fantastic. Be all the positive bees you can be in this world and more. Have a great one. Peace.
Indeed.